One day in 1971, a young woman from Australia walks calmly into the Bolivian embassy in Hamburg, West Germany. It's been a normal week for the colonel, who is taking care of his usual affairs, when she pulls out a Colt pistol and shoots him dead. The subsequent investigation reveals that he, she's not Australian at all. She's a Bolivian born in Germany and a militant leftist furious over the government's attacks on the guerrilla forces there. Deeper still, her Colt pistol is traced to an Italian armory. Its original purchaser is a publisher, Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, who has a personal relationship with Fidel Castro, was arrested in Bolivia, and is known for crisscrossing Europe during his travels. How did Feltrinelli's gun end up in the hand of a left-wing assassin in Germany? Did this single event indicate a much more extensive network of transnational political violence? These were the questions being asked as Italy began to descend into the armed conflict that scourged a generation, known commonly as the years of lead. So, I'm here with Phil Edwards, a wonderful guy and the author of More Work, Less Pay, which is a brilliant sort of uh, chronicle of the hot autumn and the development of autonomia in the early 70s. I'll vouch for this. There are vanishingly few historians of the, one of the most intriguing periods in the 20th century, right? So I was talking about this with Steve Wright as well, and, and we kind of laughed because uh, every now and then somebody, some like PhD candidate or something will add a footnote kind of punching at Steve saying, you know, like, Steve said this, but he was wrong. And like, they'll single him out for like a kind of a trivial thing. And it sounds like it's petty, but it's actually because his work, your work, maybe a couple of other authors, that's like mm. all scholars really have to go on. That's kind of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you end up almost like punching bags because it's like, I mean, you don't necessarily, but like, you know what I mean? It's like, there's so few scholars out there doing this. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show. So today we're going to be talking about Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli. And please forgive my horrible Italian accents and all that stuff. But um, <clears throat> he's one of the most interesting figures of this period perhaps one of the most influential for sure but he came from he 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 came from an exceedingly wealthy family and this is kind of the basis for how he builds his publishing empire and his mm. reputation it's sort of like a complicated background that he's never able to fully divorce himself from right his, he idolized his grandfather his grandfather's generation spoke german and the Feltrinellis lived a lot of their lives on the Austrian side of the Alps, hunting and doing what rich people do, uh, cavorting around and, 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 and so forth. They had a villa on Lake Garda, uh, notoriously, <laughs> and a place in Milan to boot. The family fortune was established in the forests around Lake Garda, where the Feltrinellis owned a lot of timberlands. So this is like in the 19th century, there's a big railroad boom. Italy's just been united. The railroads are seen as this, you know, national project. So the Feltrinelli fortune booms along with the railroads. And um, they open up business in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and in the Balkans. 
By the 1890s, they're even involved in banking. Going into the 20th century, the empire had expanded to textiles and real estate. The man who'd established this massive fortune, Giacomo Feltrinelli, had actually himself come from dire poverty, and he died possibly the richest man in Milan in 1913, which is nothing to sneeze at. He's kind of the Italian version of Rockefeller or Carnegie, you know, this liberal story mm, of, of yeah. a rags-to-riches, you know, success of, of capitalism and the modern nation-state. It's absolutely absurd how integrated his empire was, you know, from, like, the timber to the boxes to the shipping to the banks to the, you know, land, real estate, anything. But his successors have a harder time. Carlo, his son, did all right, relatively speaking. His brother, Pietro, was in charge of the timber reserves and fell in love with a Romanian dancer who wouldn't return his advances, and he, he actually committed suicide tragically by the age of 28. Another brother, Beppi, is in charge of the Eastern European ventures and becomes an avid hunter. He takes a lot of photos of himself with zebras and that sort of thing, very sort of stereotypical adventurer of the time. But someone asks him to look after a bear cub, and he ends up adopting the bear cubs. But, you know, baby... Tigers and alligators may look cute when they're little, uh, uh, but they grow up, and so do bears. So, uh, mm. uh, so Bappy goes for a hug and gets mauled uh, by uh, this bear, and, he, and then he gets addicted to morphine, uh, and, he, and he dies at the age of 35, probably of an overdose. So tragedy has really befallen the Felcinelli family. The, the, last, the last brother, Antonio, takes up painting on Lake Garda, which is a scenic area, I guess, and, and left a majority stake in the lumber business to a reputed academic institution. Some people think that that was kind of like an FU to his remaining siblings. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like, well, I, I don't need any of this. I'm kind of like, a, you know, an artist, and I'm just going to give this stuff to science, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, it was his brother's widow who was particularly upset about that, and they did not get along. Uh, anyway, Antonio, or Tonino as he was called, ended up dying in 1942 after an army truck slammed into him in the street. So, tough times. <laughs> tough times for the Felcinellis. Carlo's the guy who ends up sort of in the, in the mix with, with the money, basically. He doesn't... It, it seems like he's maybe a little bit reluctant, but he's also kind of like... Uh, the way that Felcinelli's uh, son characterizes him is basically he's a sort of like grim and determined capitalist, right? He's, he's not happy about any of this stuff, but he's like prepared to slog it out and carry on with the fortune. Unfortunately... His marriage to Gianna Lisa was interrupted by a hunting accident in which a Milan banker shot her in the face with buckshot. And she lost an eye and wore a monocle to disguise the glass eye replacement. So, you know, more personal uh, problems uh, befall the Felcinellis. However, Carlo's really able to continue the family fortune. He becomes kind of mascot of Italian capitalism. And the next thing you know, here's Felcinelli with Giovanni Agnelli, the fiat mogul, and 
Piero Pirelli, the tire baron. If you, you know, you, you research the hot autumn, these are the names. Agnelli, you know, Vietnam is on the shop floor, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, Pirelli, they're just getting their stuff burned by the workers and they're being like, you know, there's occupations. I mean, these are the most infamous names in, on the left in the, in, the, in the late 1960s. And then on the other side, you have Feltrinelli, who's like the, sort of the, the third name of the Troika, but he ends up, Gian Giacomo ends up on the complete opposite side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> so we're getting into the fascist period here, right? The 1920s. So to say that these guys, Pirelli, Agnelli, and even Feltrinelli collaborated is an understatement, right? These are really the, the figures of dynamism leading Italian modernism at the time. They boosted big infrastructure projects and didn't just coexist, but generally excelled during the fascist period, at least publicly. The biography of Feltrinelli written by his son tries to leave space for saying Carlo had a complicated relationship with the fascist regime. He, he says things that are maybe disparaging about Mussolini. There's an informer who tells the fascist state. Carlo comes under the eye of the fascist secret police. He tells his informant employee, it may be that Mussolini and his gang of toadies are right, but I don't think so, related to re the revaluation of the Italian lira, which is the currency. So, you know, he starts getting some more pressure applied to him. And part of this is a scandal that he comes under, where the Italian authorities start to dig up stuff about him, an obscure irregularity associated with some Swiss connection to the Falcinelli business. And this absolutely like destroys him. And he ends up dying at the age of 54 in 1933 of either a heart attack or an embolism and there's some theories like maybe he was assassinated but what do you what do you make of this like do you think maybe carlo feltrinelli was sort of a little bit of a resistor or do you think this was all mm. just the petty stuff <laughs> i i think it was more kind of rich guys wanting to go their own way, you know, more than anything. Um, I, th I think, um, you know, he, he probably wasn't um, a wholehearted fascist and, uh, um, and, 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 you know, he, he probably preferred to run his business the way he wanted to. But um, beyond that, I, I, you know, I don't see him as a resistor as such, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... His, and this is, that's, that's probably shored up by the fact that his widow ma marries Luigi Barzini Jr., who is absolutely a scion of the journalistic celebrity adventurer, sort of uh, up-and-coming fascist persona, uh, condottieri of the newspapers or something like that. He participated in that Beijing to Paris race in which the Prince Junio Borghese's uncle participated as well. Junio, the Black Prince Borghese, was obviously... People say he also had a, a, a complicated relationship with the fascist regime, more towards the end than, you know, during mm. this period. But he idolized his uncle, who was a, very much an adventurer, 
And this is an interesting case of, of just that aspect of Italian like history, mm. you know, sort of surfacing here with Luigi Barzini Jr. and the widow of, of Carlo Feltrinelli. So Barzini worked at the Corriere de, della Sera as their London co- correspondent, but apparently like he might have gotten a little like tipsy at a at an important dinner and let something slip, maybe a little bit of a brag about how the Italians could decode the Allies' transmissions. Mm. And so they switched up their coding and and obviously the Italians found out about this because they could no longer you know like interpret yeah. the British code. Hugely important slip up there. Yeah. <laughs> like that's in the world of intelligence that's like the most massive you know screw up that you can I, I mean one of them so anyway Barzini and the Felcinellis get banished to the Amalfi coast I mean there are way worse places <laughs> a worse places to be banished they had a nice house and everything like that but they they didn't like it there they were they felt like kind of uh suppressed so they they were finally allowed to move back to milan especially after fighting intensified in the south of italy in 1942 well and then they moved from milan to argentario further north and gian giacomo the firstborn felcinelli he would chat with the workers there they had a big estate he would sneak out at night and it gets subject to a range of abuses from his mom, hates his stepdad, gets locked in the cellar for days, pretty abused, you know, as a kid with his fascist parents. But he's also a member of the fascist youth organization, which he freely admits. He says, I was glad when the war was going well and the fascist armies were advancing. At the same time, I was listening to Radio London. I was against the Germans and could see no good coming of the war. I hoped that the monarchy would grasp the first opportunity to get rid of the fascists. That was so common mm, in Italy mm, in mm. the mid-40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting attitude. Um, I mean, you know, ultimately the monarchy did get rid of the fascists, but, um, you know, it's a very little avail because... Um, what promptly happened was Italy was divided between the Allies and the Germans, but um, but but yeah, you know, being an Italian patriot, being a bit anti-German, but at the same time not necessarily being against the monarchy, you know, that that's uh, as you say, very very common attitude, and this kind of um, this kind of doubleness, you know, that the um, that that somebody could be. Uh, sympathetic with the resistance, but also kind of sympathetic with um, with, with with the army of the monarchy because you know because it was Italy and you wanted to be on Italy's side. Um, there, there was a lot of that going on. I think it's very interesting looking at Carlo Feltrinelli's book that um, he he's he skates right over the period of the armistice. Um, you know, one minute we're in forty two, mm. next we're in forty three. And then we're at 44, you know, and, you know, so, so it, it was a big sea change in, in, um, in, um, uh, in the, in Italian politics when the, the monarchy concluded an armistice with, uh, with the allies. And, um, so, you know, it was no longer a matter of fascist Italy 
uh, versus the Allies. It was now Nazi Germany versus the Allies with right. with Italy as the the theatre of war, and mm. um, that the, the whole idea of being a resistor really really started at, at, at that point. You know, there mm. there was some kind of sporadic Italian resistance to fascism, but very very small scale. So resistance really got going, and the partisan struggle really got going. Um, after the Germans invaded, and and you, so you got this sort of patriotic duty to repel the German invader, as well as the anti-fascist yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's interesting in the in the sixties when the press and even the conservative press is is really trying to malign the sort of fascist terrorist groups, they'll call them Nazi fascists, mm, mm, right? Exactly. That was the worst thing to be. Like, okay, you might have been fascist before <laughs> 1945 or before 1943, yeah. you know? And so, you know, whatever, you know, you might be a Christian Democrat now. We, you know, the term is a sensitive term. But a Nazi fascist, Nazi fascist. a Nazi fascist, <laughs> you were still with these Nazis while they were committing all these war crimes, mm. you know, and you still agree that that's good, right? So, so in the 60s, th what you're talking about becomes like really supremely important. Also because you end up with these monarchist former partisans, right? The, the so-called white partisans who mm. especially fought in the northeast of Italy. And you have like really kind of creepy people like De, De Lorenzo, Aloya, uh, I want to say Sonio, but he was actually a liberal uh, resistor. But people who were in the anti-fascist resistance who ended up, in the case of De Lorenzo, in the MSE, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's like this interesting kind of fluidity between the monarchists and the legacy of fascism, uh, mm -hmm. where you have a lot of monarchists who end up very resentful, especially of the, of the referendum to get rid of the monarchy after the war. Yeah, so yeah. At, unfortunately for the Felchinellis and, um, and Luigi Barzini, their new estate, at Argentario becomes a hub for German supplies. They didn't anticipate that. They thought that they were moving to a peaceful area that wouldn't be bombed, you know, like Milan was being, or a center of conflict and so forth. They thought they were getting away from all that, but then the Germans start parking their supplies nearby, and so Allied bombing raids come to town. So Gian Giacomo actually flees for the hills, and he joins up with the partisans for safety. He's only gone for a few days during that affair, and he's sent to a monastery in Rome afterwards. But in November 1944, he joins a combat unit to fight against the Nazis, ultimately joining the Communist Party in 1945. So a massive transformation there, happening from 44 to 45, where Gian Giacomo Felcinelli, very young man at this point, joins the Partisans for Safety, ends up in a kind of a resistance combat unit. And then through that, through friendships, he joins the Communist Party in 45. And he becomes an avid Communist Party member for the next 20 years or so. I mean, I, we'll say 15 maybe because of the, we'll get into it. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> but for, the, for these purposes, he becomes, he becomes an avid Communist Party member. 
Um, and the, com the Communist Party is very much taking a leading role in the in the in the resistance in the partisan struggle. Um, and and it's, it's interesting because um, you know retrospectively, a lot a lot of uh, people on the left uh, claimed that the the partisan struggle had been you know, potentially revolutionary, that it was a, a proletarian battle against the fascists and, and so on. But um, at the time, the, the, the line from the Communist Party was very much, you know, the patriotic struggle. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a quote from um, Pietro Secchia, who was go on to oh, be yeah. you know, a name to conjure with in the, in the early 60s. Um, and in 1944, Secchia wrote, um, I'll just translate on the fly, um, it's the supreme duty of communists and patriots to leave the fa factory, leave the offices, leave the fields, um, and um, pick up a rifle against the German invader. So again, you've got that sort of against the German invader. It's not just you know mm -hmm. against oh, yeah. fascism; it's against the invader. And um, you know, it's not it's not sort of class based uh, rhetoric at all. It's very very much this sort of great oh, yeah. patriotic struggle. Then they call themselves uh, uh, the Garibaldi Brigades, which is not mm. a reference. There's there's no reference to the communists there. That's that's mm. a reference to sort of adventuristic, quasi liberal nationalist tradition of the Risorgimento, and this is also this becomes really the the format right for how people view the legacy of the resistance. Colossally important for Feltrinelli is that it's a resistance betrayed, right? It's the, mm, it, mm. that the resistance was the true inheritor of the Italian revolutionary tradition, starting with Garibaldi, maybe even Mazzini. And then from the resistance, you have the communists trying to then leverage their work within the resistance, fighting against the fascists and the Nazis, like you said, into a leadership role, a legitimate leadership role, right? Exactly, With the, yeah. the turn to Salerno, right? They're going to participate in Parliament. They're going to do everything right. And, you know, if we do everything right and we follow the rules, we're the ones who are destined to rule. You mm, know, mm. they felt that. Other people in Italy didn't feel that so much. Neither did the CIA. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, following the war, this becomes really interesting. Gian Giacomo becomes something like an informant on monarchist circles for the Communist Party because he's he's still kind of lodged within aristocratic circles, right? And he has this history of being fascist youth or in the fascist youth group. Uh, and also kind of sympathizing with the monarchists, and his family is sympathizing with the monarchists. Um, but the Communist Party blows up his spot in their, in their party paper, exposing a story that he uh, told them about a planned coup that aristocratic circles were considering the night of the great referendum on the monarchy. Um, right, again, another massive intelligence failure. If you're the only source for something, if, if there could be no other source and a group basically publishes the thing that you told them, then they totally blow your cover, right? And that's what happened to Feltrinelli. The referendum was an absolute catastrophe, and it's worth reading from the account of Gian Giacomo's mom. 
about the dinner party that she was holding where the king was present. So the king is actually present at Gian Giacomo's mom's dinner party that night. And she says, This sorrowful historic act was unfolding amid dimmed lights and the dark outlines of the cypresses that seemed projected into my room. The words followed one another in a disconnected stream. Every now and then, the king would take a glass of champagne from an antique silver salver and put it to his lips. I tried not to cry, but when he bent over to embrace me, my tears fell on his hand. It was 4.30 in the morning of the 13th of June. What anguish! Alberto Bergamini accompanied his majesty to his automobile. On the return to the room, he paced up and down like a wounded lion, unable to talk under the weight of the destiny that was about to come to pass. I told you, De Gasperi was a traitor. I exploded from time to time. De Gasperi was also... He would, he would become uh, the prime minister, the first prime minister. Yeah, yeah, in effect, yeah. He was a very mm -hmm. safe, you know, Christian Democrat who was part of that kind of um, uh, National Liberation Committee. And apparently he was trying to give assurances to the aristocrats, you know, don't worry, things won't change that much. But as things happen, he ends up heading up the government and uh, the king ends up leaving Italy. Mm, yeah, yeah. Goes to, yeah. Yeah, so big catastrophe for the Italian monarchy and its entire tradition. Uh, Gian Giacomo's mom flees for Salazar's Portugal, uh, where she remains. And Gian Giacomo, uh, on the other hand, sticks, sticks, he stays behind in Italy and he marries an avid communist named Bianca. Together they embark on a a uh, romantic life of revolutionism. So that's really where Felcinelli, where, where the rubber hits the road for Felcinelli's career. He's, uh, he sort of has this devastating split with his mother. He's already been kind of tortured as a child uh, and uh, joins the Communist Party, falls in love. And with his new girlfriend or his new wife, Bianca, he just sort of explodes onto the communist social scene. Which in Italy was a thing, you know, because the, the Communist Party was numerically so huge that, you know, that it, it was this whole sort of social life for its members. Exactly, exactly. So he, it's, it's like he's gaining an entire new life, right? Mm. Um, mm. He does things like he's flyering, he's putting up placards, you know, he's participating in protests. Not something that most aristocratic youth were doing, really, you know. <laughs> he's no, really, indeed. you know, he's in a pretty dangerous position. And after the attempted assassination on Togliatti, the leader of the Communist Party, this was after the crippling loss of the Popular Front in the elections of 1948. And it was a fascist that tried to kill him. There's a general strike. There's a wave of violence. A lot of people, the Communist Party was quite militant, even though it was so huge. And even though it was 
going into parliament, there was constantly a juggling act between mm. Togliatti being like, we're joining the parliament, we're going legit. And, you know, the other guys who had been in the resistance and were like, sure, go ahead and do the parliament thing. But we're also stockpiling guns and waiting for the absolute insurrection. And for a lot of them, Togliatti gets shot. All bets are off. Right. Mm, so mm. so there are occupations, there's violence in the streets. It's a it, it's a really it's a crisis period, even though Togliati like, gets up from his hospital bed to say, like, everybody calm down and wait this out. And, and Secchia, who we mentioned before, was actually he was kind of second in command in the party. And he was actually, in you know, busy calming everyone down and saying, look, guys, this isn't the glorious day. We're not going to storm Parliament or whatever, you know. Um, and, and basically telling everyone, can you just get back to work, you know, which is um, so, so. So, yeah, the, the kind of insurrectionist elements of the party was mostly quite low level, I think. Right. Rank and file. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, in this crisis period, Felcinelli gets arrested and thrown in jail briefly for putting up political placards without uh, registration or license. There's a lot of old, like, oppressive laws that remain in place in Italy from the fascist period for decades, you know. So he's putting up placards. He doesn't have a, a you know, permission to do so. He gets thrown in jail, which is kind of a mark of honor for him, you know, a rite of passage in a sense. And he's definitely not uh, unwilling to put in some grunt work. At the same time, he drives around in this blue Buick, you know, super class symbol. He's very flamboyant. He has no interest in, like, putting on the Eskimo jacket and the workers' boots and doing that kind of, like, student movement, like, we're cool and part of the working class type of thing. He's Feltrinelli. He wants everybody to know who he is and how rich he is, you know? But he also, yeah, but he also, but he also is also fully prepared to share his resources with his fellow comrades, if they're hip. And one of the things I think that really kind of tortured Feltrinelli is the fact that, like you were saying, during that period after the armistice, when Mussolini is fighting it out alongside the Nazis, he actually retreats to and makes his headquarters out of the, the Feltrinelli's villa on Lake Garda. So, mm. so Feltrinelli is sort of like connected to this property that used to be the headquarters of Mussolini. So he's like, what do I do with that? In 1948, he opens up the family villa to a communist summer camp. And holding the camp was probably a way of trying to shed the historical associations. So his biographer's son, Carlo, writes, it was a deliberate move and a clear warning to the fascists. Come back and you'll get yours. And it was, it was no joke, apparently. It wasn't just, like, theorizing and lounging around. One group, led by Ugo Chiapina, decided on a life of crime there, actually forming what became known as the Chiapina Gang, or the Everywhere Gang. They stockpiled weapons and perpetrated armed robberies, developing around them about a dozen cohort on their way to building a reputation as a pretty fearsome criminal entity. So Feltrinelli gets implicated in this criminal gang and gets arrested again, but only for a day 
And after this, he gets bodyguards because the media is just absolutely going crazy. You know, who is this communist aristocrat tied to the underworld? I think this is kind of an interesting time in Italian history because it's before the armed groups. But there's this legacy of banditry. <laughs> so you have... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you, so you have like this like inchoate system of armed groups that are more like old school bandits than they are like the Red Brigades or something like that. They don't really necessarily have a theory, you know, mm. behind their actions. They're not like applying scientific Marxism to some kind of armed party or something like that. They're just, they're more like bandits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what Hobbesworm called uh, primitive rebels. You know, they're just people who are just kind of, you know, living off the grid, living outside of the norm. And, um, and yeah, you know, supporting themselves through a life of crime. But, you know, that's secondary. And but <laughs> it, 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 it is kind of there. It's sort of, it's an available repertoire of behavior if you, if you want to be sort of sociological about it. And, and, and yeah, that is interesting, the way that um, the armed groups kind of tap right into that. Yeah, and, uh, for, and a lot of this comes out of just dire poverty, right? Mm, like, mm. It's, it's hard to really like conceptualize the late 40s and 50s in Italy in terms of how impoverished people were. Right. Oh, like the, the main trade was like selling black market cigarettes. Half the factories were bombed out. The big kind of thing that made everybody furious at the time was that the allied soldiers were still there and that there was just a lot of prostitution going on with uh, mm. with with allied soldiers. And because there was no alternatives in terms of getting money. And so there was this real kind of specter of the Allied occupation as this exploitative force and the people just being extraordinarily poor in an environment where crime, it almost like wasn't crime anymore. The, the informal marketplace was like the only place you could get anything. Mm, there was, mm. The pasta was black. It was just really a hard time for people. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, the, this kind of banditry, this kind of... There is a class element to it. And I think that's probably what attracted these guys to Feltrinelli's summer camp. You know, they're probably mm -hmm. just like, hey, this, 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 like, millionaire wants to, wants to you know, a bunch of, bunch of, like, angry people to show up and, and talk about, like, how much we hate the rich. Okay. And this is a point that a lot of people make along the way, too, is that Feltrinelli's from this class that... If his side actually won, he would be thrown in a, some kind of gulag, right? Yes. <laughs> or, or, or lined up against the wall. And, and they yeah. brought it up to Feltrinelli, too. It was like something that he would joke about, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of contradictions in this guy's life. But that didn't stop him. In one place, you know, his family owned this, uh, this property, part of an old folks' home, but there weren't a lot of old folks living there. So what he did was he converted it into like a daycare for children. And there were two women with the uh, Communist Party who tended there. They fed and clothed and looked after these kids. And these kids are emaciated. 
They come from extremely poor families. And, and here's the Feltrinelli fortune going to cleaning up and feeding these extremely poor kids through the Communist Party as well. And he also finances a lot of the Communist Party's activities, helps them make up for losses, bankrolls their publishing house. But it's, like I said earlier, you know, it's, it's a complicated situation. This is the time, you know, where he's bankrolling the publishing house, where he starts to really grow his library. His, his library grows to such an extent that even the president of the republic drops by to, you know, check out the books. And, and this is really where he starts to get his real calling, which is publishing books. And, mm. and that's really where you have Felchinelli and his whole career taking off. And publishing books nobody else was publishing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's got a really interesting approach to publishing, right? He's a Marxist, for sure. But he doesn't publish conventional Marxist stuff. And he often publishes, like, dissident libertarian stuff or just cultural works that aren't in line mm -hmm. with the aesthetics and the protocols of the Communist Party, right? Oh, yeah, he's an instinctive libertarian, you know, at the same time as he's a, he's, you know, a very heartfelt uh, uh, Marxist commitments, you know, so it's, it's a strange mix. Right, and his, his uh, headquarters uh, at uh, Fate Bene Fratelli actually becomes kind of just a, 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 like a symbol of bohemian, offbeat, Italian counterculture avant la lettre, right? Like, it's like ahead of time, he's, he's sort of creating the conditions for the emergence of the counterculture, even in the early 50s. His nickname is the Jaguar. You know, at this point, he's like in his late 20s. He's got his famous glasses and his mustache. He's tall, you know, he's strong. And of course, he's filthy rich. According to Pino Corrias, he goes, outwardly, he's very cordial and free and easy. When we meet, it's all slaps on the back and phony punches in the gut. He likes me. Upstairs, there are managers, two of them, and the graphics office, two people there as well. Then, still upstairs, there's a Cinema Nuovo, which is Felcinelli's thing, too. Aristarco Terzi, a girl, and a young kid work there. Aristarco is a king-size ball-breaker. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like this really, like, it's like a beatnik thing, and, and he's like, he becomes the first guy who starts publishing the beatniks in, in Italy. He elevates theorists like Antonio Labriola, who's actually a pretty interesting theorist for, you know, Italian Marxist history in the late 19th century. He's got these ideas about morphology, which kind of, like, sort of paved the way for mass movement theory and stuff like that. So it's not just Gramsci, Togliatti, you know, that kind of thing. He's also getting really into the, the sort of the, the understory of Italian, of the Italian mm -hmm. left. And in reconstructing it in a sense. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, that leads him into conflict, right? Especially in 56. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in, in 56, Khrushchev denounces Stalin's crimes. And the Italian Communist Party basically is like, who cares, in a sense, you know? Um, and then, like, just months after the denunciation of Stalin's crimes, 
there's the Soviet intervention in Hungary. Soviets send in the tanks. People are like, what's the difference between Stalin and Khrushchev if they're going to oppress everybody? You already denounced this, and now you're just doing it yourself. The Communist Party pretty much supports the Soviet Union. Felchinelli, of course, does not. And this leads to a big break. Mm, mm. And, it, and, it, and, and it's not just Felchinelli, right? Across Italian society, 1956 is a decisive year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting one. I mean, part of the, um, part of the, 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 the issue with the, um, it, it, with the, um, Communist Party was the, well, what was precisely the move away from Stalinism. So you have this strange, um, double movement. On the one hand, um, People critiquing the invasion of Hungary, people um, saying it's you know too much of a, a clampdown and so on, and um, and it's it's a betrayal of the you know spirit of workers' internationalism and so on that the Soviet Union was was supposed to stand for. But on the other hand, you've got the denunciation of Stalin and a whole other bunch of people breaking with the Communist Party or severely critiquing the le the leadership of the Communist Party over that. So, you know, you have two kinds of dissent from communism, both for uh, being too Stalinist and basically for not being Stalinist enough. And, and the, the um, you know, the not Stalinist enough strand is very strong in Italy. And, um, yeah, it's, it's quite influential. And uh, Felchinelli couldn't separate himself from the faction of the Communist Party that had participated in the resistance and took mm. up arms and became partisans. Well, that's right. right. Yeah, it was really deep loyalty, yeah. And so Felchinelli doesn't leave the party, per se, but there's a, everybody knows about the split. And one of the things that really, like comes out of this split is Dr. Zhivago. Felchinelli's maybe one of the most famous publishers ever, partly because of Boris Pasternak. It, it, you can't separate Felchinelli from Dr. Zhivago. And it's absolutely incredible how this worked. So Felchinelli is able to broker a deal whereby his Italian publishing house would be able to print a translation of Dr. Zhivago from Pasternak shortly after its publication in Russia. I have no idea how he had those connections and ended up making that, but he was like going to be the sole purchaser of Zhivago in the West. Mm. Absolutely monumental. And he maybe was the only person who realized how important that was going to be. And the quick turnaround, so it gets published in Russia, it gets published in the West. That would bring Felchinelli the sole copyright in the book, to the book in the West as a result of Russia's non-existing copyright protections for authors and the post-war European agreements that resulted. So Felchinelli stands to gain a lot from this. But as Pasternak is preparing to publish in Russia, the KGB intercepts his letter written on cigarette paper, and Soviet authorities become alarmed. Pasternak has argued that money doesn't interest him, and he asks Felchinelli to hold all his royalties for him in Italy, 
and this detail was likely especially problematic for the Soviet authorities. The foreign ministry declares Pasternak's novel a ferocious libel against the USSR, insisting that they were taking steps to prevent the publication abroad of his anti-Soviet book. They pressured the Italian Communist Party to get Felcinelli to return the manuscripts in his possession, which, if the Soviet Union is leaning on the Communist Party in Italy, there's going to be a lot of pressure on you if you're an Italian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In that, during that period, like you said, the Italian Communist Party is absolutely gigantic, hugely powerful, and the Soviets are a whole different beast. And so Falcinelli's feeling a lot of pressure. And he doesn't take this lightly. I mean, he is sweating. He's, this, mm. is, this, is a, this is a lot of drama in Falcinelli's life right now. And then the Soviets start leaning on Pasternak. So they insisted that he telegram to Felcinelli to wait six months before publishing so that he could wait for an official contract after the authorities revised his manuscript. And Pasternak wrote to him, but instead of writing in Italian, he wrote in French, which was kind of a code to Felcinelli. You know, we exchange all our letters in Italian, and this, this letter says something contradictory, and it's in French. So I'm not going to trust this. Um, mm. He goes forward with the translation of the unedited manuscript in full, which hasn't been touched by the authorities and which he has in his possession. A few months down the line, and a member of an Italian communist delegation to Moscow gets pulled aside by Pasternak himself, who says, tell Felcinelli that I want my book to come out at all costs. Right? So Pasternak is undercutting the authorities of the Soviet Union in order to get his unedited manuscript published, and Felcinelli is there to put it out first in Italian, unadulterated. These are really heated times. Pasternak's health is declining fast, and he already told Felcinelli that he wants his original manuscript published and that further letters are now to be ignored. And now comes uh, the letters asking to withhold publication entirely until a fully revised and edited manuscript is produced. So this is going to be fake. Felcinelli's translator goes to Moscow and tells Felcinelli that Pasternak asks you not to pay any heed to this and cannot wait for the book to come out, even though they have threatened to reduce him to starvation and have already deprived him of work previously commissioned. His safety depends on people believing that he will receive nothing in terms of money. So the whole idea is, he, he's writing to Felcinelli, I don't care about money at all, just keep mm. all my money for me in Italy. He, he has to. Like, if the yeah. Soviet authorities, he can't get money wired to him in Moscow. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, and at this point, he starts feeling really sorry for Felcinelli, because Felcinelli's gotten all tied up in his, what he calls his wretched fate. So at the end of September 1957, weeks after the manuscripts is supposed to be published in Rome, the actual head of the Soviet Writers' Union, a guy named Surkov, personally visits Milan to impose on Felcinelli. And the story is that the meeting took two hours in the publisher's office. They're screaming at each other. They could hear the yells across the hall. Felcinelli later called the writer's union head a hyena dipped in syrup. 
And when Surkov tried to invoke the forced telegram, Feltrinelli responded, I am well aware of how documents of this kind are obtained. So extraordinarily heated situation here, international conflict. In mid-October, Feltrinelli writes back to Pasternak, Today, seeing that the Soviet publisher has no intention of publishing your work, we no longer need to see any reason for postponement. Although it reached Pasternak late, it was music to his ears. He was delighted to see an Italian Zhivago coming out. And when it did come out, it rocked the literary world. The Soviets are astonished in disbelief that one of theirs would undermine their authority after all. The books sold like hotcakes. Pirated versions started to appear. You have the spectacle of Feltrinelli scrambling around Europe, around the United States, trying to prevent, you know, pirated versions of Zhivago with different translations from coming out that are unapproved. Some of them have edited manuscripts. He suspects it's the CIA doing it all. Maybe the KGB might have been involved as well to try and get their preferred translations coming out. So it's absolute mess. And actually, Zhivago. It becomes the centerpiece in the civil in this in the Cold War. This doesn't help for Pasternak. Uh, he's censured heavily in the so the Soviet press tears him apart, but he wins the Pulitzer. Uh, but after winning the Pulitzer, they said they're going to expel him from the Soviet Union if he accepts. So so Pasternak is a mess, and Feltrinelli is a mess. It's all just a mess. Uh, mm. so he did decline the Pulitzer and people came out to protest at his house. He's being reviled in Russia and he had to get a guard to ensure that they didn't actually physically attack him. He's denounced during a public meeting of the young communists by the head of the Komsomol, which is like the Vanguard youth organization as a pig who fouls his own trough. At this point, he's contemplating suicide uh, in spite of the fact that he's one of the best read authors in the world. (laughs) So, So that whole episode shows, I think, like how dashing and it, it Felchinelli is in the world of publishing. It's like the, you know, the publishing world is pretty staid, conservative, takes a long time to do things. There's all kinds of, you know, difficulty, uh, at least traditionally. Felchinelli comes along and he throws it all, you know, into the fire and just like blazes this trail. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know, cuts a sway through the whole thing and says, you know, and and I mean, he put himself out. He put himself to to some, you know, personal inconvenience to to get all this done, to say the least. And um, uh, you know, he he certainly wasn't just doing it for the for the money or the the glory or whatever. It was um, it was um, yeah, you know, the the, the it, it it's hard to imagine um. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine a world without Dr. Zhivago, and it's hard to imagine Dr. Zhivago existing without Feltrinelli. So, you know, it's a remarkable achievement. Right, and there was, you know, a movie made out of it, which is still the seventh highest grossing film in Italy. Um, who's in it? Um, Omar Sharif? Omar Sharif, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a, I love that movie. It's really good, but I'm a big Omar Sharif fan. 
<laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. Yeah. But they also published The Leopard, right? Which is, yeah, yeah. Which is one of the best works of Italian literature. Or at least it's seen as such. I mean, there's a critics everywhere, but the the film for the leopard becomes one of the most popular Italian movies of the post-war Absolutely, yeah, period. Yeah. Vis, Visconti, you know, it's like beautiful, just incredible landscapes, scenery, you know, mm, wonderful mm. acting. Uh, and Visconti, you know, I think it's interesting. The leopard is interesting because it's about an aristocratic family during the Resurgimento and the different kind of sort of moves that different members of the family make in light of the political turmoil of the time. Mm. So I wonder if this didn't kind of, you know, touch a nerve for Feltrinelli himself in the post-war yeah, period yeah. coming from the aristocracy, like I'm making my move for the revolution, just like heroes of the past. Yeah, 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 and that, that's you know the famous line in the in the leopard. Um, in order for everything to everything to stay the same, everything has to change, you know, which is very much how the Italian ruling class uh, sustained itself. And um, you know, you can see Feltrinelli looking at that and thinking, well, no, actually, you know, <laughs> actually, I think everything should change. You know, it's, right, um, right. And 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 at this time, Feltrinelli is really committing himself to anti-colonial movements. You know, I think really? he he extrapolates the National Liberation Committee of the Italian resistance towards the global South, which is not a difficult thing to do. I mean, the mm-hmm. the the independence uh, organization in Algeria was called the National Liberation Front, right? I mean, Mm, mm. the anti-colonial movements throughout the world tended to also, I think, identify to an extent with the anti-fascist resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Feltrinelli helps kind of make these ties. Yeah, and um, according to, well, in Nani Balestrini's novel L'Editore, which means the publisher, um, which, which is about Feltrinelli's death and the impact that it had, um, some somebody and it's kind of semi-non-fictional. Um, and um, one of the characters mentions in that that the first time he met Feltrinelli, it was when he was active in the uh, what's called the Janson network, uh, which was a network um, supporting members of the Algerian um, Committee of National Liberation uh, outside Algeria. So, you know, helping them get around, um, what, you know, helping them live underground and so on. So, you know, Feltrin- again, Feltrinelli really was putting himself on the line. He, he wasn't just sort of um, giving money to good causes and so on. And I suppose, you know, that, 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 was, that, that was the man he was. You know, he wanted to be there in first oh, yeah. person throws himself into what he's doing absolutely throws himself into what he's doing he publishes stuff from anti-colonial movements uh from outlaw africa to algerians at war to problems and perspectives in the algerian revolution these become classics of their period and their milieu he also publishes a book by a spanish author that was banned by franco called the surf uh, and compares it to one of Pasolini's early works. Interestingly, if, if publishing an author banned by Franco didn't rankle the far right, 
Comparing it to Pasolini certainly did. Because <laughs> they hated Pasolini. They hated yeah, him yeah. with a burning passion. He was physically assaulted a number of times. His screenings were assaulted. Avanguardia Nazionale especially targeted him. We'll get into Pasolini in a future episode. He's an interesting guy. I'm not a huge fan of his, but he's still a really important character. Mm, mm, um, same. But anyway. Um, so it makes sense that the... Given the connection to, to Pasolini, it actually kind of makes sense that the launch of The Surf in Milan, uh, a film about the plight of migrant workers in Spain was attacked by former Italian paratroopers. Anyway, so as the Algerian crisis is heating up, in 1961, Felcinelli supported a letter that declared, by riding roughshod over the traditions of the Enlightenment and democracy, French conservative forces and some military circles are a threat to democracy. They are a hotbed of intrigues against democratic and progressive forces in Europe. Algerians and French citizens are being persecuted and hunted down with methods that would... remind world opinion of those employed by the Nazi fascists. Mm. There's that word. Um, mm. this, is, this is important. Um, the letter insists, the struggle is our struggle, Italians. We ask you to make a strong expression of indignation against the fascist forces at work in France and against the war in Algeria. Algeria is such an important thing for the post-war right because this is where the OAS comes out of. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the secret army organization that participates I- effectively in the in the downfall of the Fourth Republic in France and the elevation of de Gaulle, because they believe that de Gaulle is going to liberate France from NATO. And he gets the French out of Algeria mm. and the OAS hates him forever because of it, tries to assassinate him, I think, multiple times. Right. So the OAS spawns a massive network that has a real home in Salazar's Portugal and extends to Franco's Spain and extends into what, you know, uh, Italian Nera or like the, the fascist underbelly of Italian political life, mm-hmm. you know, um, so. So Feltrinelli is standing up here and he's saying, these are fascist forces in Algeria. We shouldn't dismiss that. Even, you know, historically from an objective point of view, the reactionaries in the French army in Algeria, I mean, to say the very least, are Vichy nostalgists. But really, to articulate the situation, they were contributing to fascist terror in Italy well into the 1970s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it directly, you know, affected Felcinelli as the, you know... Yeah, of course, yeah. So, um... So, at this time, while he's supporting the anti-colonial cause, Felcinelli's also publishing Kerouac. He's publishing Henry Miller. He's really driving a countercultural trend in Italy. And he publishes a book in 1965 called The Deputy, which criticizes Pope Pius VII's complicity with the fascist regime and causes massive controversy in Italy. One theater Mm, company's mm. efforts to put an adaptation on stage was shut down with an armored car, several Jeeps, and police vans. 
I think often yeah. they would use this, they'll use the specter of a fascist intervention in order to clamp down on it and ban it, right? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and it, and it is interesting that, that this, um, you know, you have this, this confluence of um, uh, quite, um, um, well, in some ways quite orthodox, in other ways quite unorthodox, but certainly Marxism uh, of, um, on one hand and um, cultural libertarianism on the other hand. You know, we're getting into the 60s, this kind of stuff is sort of bubbling up everywhere. But it, in Italy is very, it's kind of like Ireland in that respect, you know, it's very um, culturally backward in, in, in the sense of, you know, being not in the sense of high culture, but in the sense of um, being very much sort of behind the wave. Uh, divorce to... wasn't even legal until 1974. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And, um, you, you know, so there's a lot of um, suppressed, um, um, you know, it, you know, rebellion um, on, on a purely sort of cultural level. And um, so he's channeling that as well as channeling the, the, the more politically radical, more obviously politically radical stuff. It's, it's um, and, um, you know, the, in, in politics sometimes, you know, you find out whether, um, you find out whether you're on the right lines by the reaction that you get. If people push back hard enough, then you know you're, you know, <laughs> in the right place. And Feltrinelli um, certainly got people pushing back, you know. And he wanted that, too, because he's such an adventurer. But I think it also did affect him. At the same time, I think in the, by the mid-60s, Feltrinelli's personal life is starting to get really kind of problematic. You know, he's kind of a womanizer, as I understand mm. it. You know, um, anyway, I think there's more on that later. But for now, this countercultural stuff, the spectacles in the papers... Uh, his his publishing company, he starts to get really popular with the younger generation, right? And in, in, uh, mm. the student and the student movement is becoming a force. It's becoming a force. You have a lot of altercations with fascists uh, on campus. Paolo Rossi was basically shoved off a wall and was killed by fascists in Rome at Sapienza. And there's a lot of vicious animosity and protest between the fascists, the left, and the police on campus. In 1967, Felcinelli publishes Mao's Little Red Book, and once again, all bets are off, because Maoism has a huge impact, you know, mm. on the younger mm. generation in Italy. You have these stories from the student movement days where Fascists will come in and start doing a straight arm salute and chanting, you know, Mussolini. And then the students will reply with a raised fist and start chanting Mao, 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 you know. Mm. Um, so in a sense, Mao becomes the, the figure that students will use to counter the figure of Mussolini and fascism. Mm. But I want, I want to, I mean, you... I'm a little bit sort of, I don't know as much about the student movement, surely, as you do. And so, you know, as we get into this, we're talking about Felchardelli publishing, Che Guevara's We Need to Create Two, Three, Many Vietnams. He's idealizing part, the partisan struggles and in the mountains of Italy, while at the same time kind of producing these third world tracts like 10 Days in Guatemala and Guerrilla Warfare in Venezuela. 
kind of amounting to the suggestion uh, that guerrilla warfare could be unified with the legacy of partisan struggle in Italy in order to create a new revolutionary movement, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe in tandem, but also aside from the Communist Party. Yeah. He brings the Al-Fatah people from, from Palestine after the Six Days War in 1967 to the fore of public consciousness. One of the first to really elevate the idea of Palestinian armed struggle as a liberatory potential. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's worth saying that um, that there, there was quite a lot of um, um, unrest, to put it mildly, in in South America at the time. So so you had the uh, um, Supermaros movement in I think Uruguay, and um, uh, Felton is fascinated with them. He, he publishes their manual on how to run a how to run a guerrilla war, basically, yeah. and. Uh, uh, the, the the other guy is Carlos Marighella, and he, he published Marighella's manual on you know being a an urban revolutionary, and um, so so that you know there is this idea that it you know why is this man publishing this stuff in Italy, a developed country? Well, you know possibly we'll be able to use it some some way down the line. Um, it, it's um, yeah, it's it's it, it's quite a sort of abstract possibility at this stage in the in the mid sixties, but the idea of somehow linking up these struggles is is kind of in the back of people's minds. I think the Tupamaros are really fascinating because the Red Brigades end up producing like this weird interview Tupamaro style where they try to elucidate their ideas, you mm. know, in a very simplified fashion for the people, you know, yeah, explicitly yeah. drawing on the Tupamaro tradition. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I mean that one. That one is a really it, it, a clear kind of connection where you have you know. But you know, we'll get more into that in a bit. It's it is fascinating that you know the 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 idea of we need to create two, three, many Vietnams that becomes like a a talking point for Lotta Continua. So, Felchinelli. <laughs> a wild and crazy guy whose life takes a even crazier turn <laughs> where he starts to work with Fidel Castro, basically bouncing back and forth from Italy to Cuba, trying to work with Castro on a book by interviewing him and drawing out his ideas. This is where that famous photo of Felcinelli playing basketball with Castro comes from during this period. And they reveal a lot about Castro's thinking some of which was incredibly candid. The revolution would have been made and would have been made the same even if there had not been one single communist, Castro tells Felchinelli. Most of the middle class and the petite bourgeoisie are for the revolution. The party must not become a part of the state, he says. <laughs> These are the early yeah. years. But yeah, it's we expect party functionaries to become state functionaries and administrators too. So he's got this sort of one-way idea of the party and the state, where mm, the mm. party has to stay away from the state, but party members ought to be directly involved in the administration mm, of the state. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, the, the 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 more you listen to Fidel, I think. Uh, the more you realize that, that that the you know the Cuban revolution really wasn't a conventional communist revolution if there is such a thing you know right well yeah and i i don't think felchinelli liked what 
Castro yeah. had to tell him it all because this this yeah. wasn't what he wanted to hear. You know, he wanted to hear this is how you make revolution. You become a communist. You abide by the abstract principles. You abide by these specific blueprints. You take it, you know, from the sort of national tradition that'll bring people along, and then you fight against the reactionaries, the bourgeoisie, you know, stuff like that. Fidel's like, mm-hmm. nah, not really. Like most people here wanted the revolution. We just kind of <laughs> seized the moment, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, Felchinelli thought Castro was ideologically confused. That's a quote. And he called Castro a sort of Garibaldi, utterly unsuited to government work, incapable of working reasoning and hard thinking, impulsive, rhetorical, high-pitched. Oh, God. Most notably, Felcinelli noted that, quote, he confuses his polemical denunciations with reality. He, speaking of polemical denunciations, he never asks for news. He seems to me a person so convinced of himself, this is Felcinelli, uh, of the things that were learned at random and that stuck in his mind, of the cliches that he's picked up, that talking to him is useless. Hush. <laughs> How could that not have been a mutual sentiment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked at it that way, but yeah. <laughs> Pot calling the kettle black a little bit. I mean, Felcinelli... Is bouncing around the world like a pinball, you know, talk about learning things at random. Um, mm, mm, it's, it's mm. A person convinced of himself, did Felcinelli ever have a moment of like self-reflection where he thought, you know, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Mm. Yeah, that's it. And, and again, like, uh, confuses polemical dis- denunciations with reality. I mean... <laughs> what kind of reality was was Felcinelli living in? That said, both both men have a massive impact. You know, for for whatever, like if they didn't get along or or whatever criticisms they might have had, they were both hugely important for their period. So Castro's interventions would not be another Zhivago like. Felcinelli wanted it to be. You know, Felcinelli wanted the Castro book to explode around the world. This was going to be Zhivago, but more explicitly revolutionary. More than not being a new Zhivago, it seems like the whole experience kind of brought Felcinelli a little perspective on the growing third world movement that he had been promoting. He noted that Castro had soured on, the, on Maoist China and wrote down that Mao is an arteriosclerotic old fool who talks with the gods. Yeah. It's, it's weird when you see, like, Felchinelli's talking about Mao, like, Mao's an old fool, you know, who's kind of a lunatic. It's like, you published his little red book, dude. Like, <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Yeah so conveniently divorces himself from his own responsibility after disavowing the same people who he's disseminating. And in a sense, he's going back on his own legacy, I suppose. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I guess as a publisher, he would say he was, you know, putting the stuff out there for people to make their own sense of. But, um, yeah. but yeah, you know, his, his, his sort of personal judgments on... Both Mao and Castro are kind of harsh. Um, and, uh, yeah. Well, one thing that I agree with him about is that he did speak out against 
the rhetoric that Fidel used about uh, gay people, where he, Fidel calls them parasites, mm. and uh, um, this kind of branding was extended to intellectuals in Cuba in general. And yeah. Felchardelli doesn't like this at all. He says, I, 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 I spy dangerous clouds of intolerance in his journal. He writes that down. So, mm-hmm. so he does, mm-hmm. he, he, he still has that anti-authoritarian thing to him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. But um, he hadn't at all lost faith in, like, revolution through guerrilla tactics you know while he's working on the fidel book uh the call comes in it's regis debray famous sort of uh left-wing journalist who spends all this time with left-wing guerrillas revolutionaries in in latin america you Mm, know regis mm. debray is like this hardcore revolutionary in, in from france and debray gets arrested and tortured in bolivia nobody mm. knew at that time the che guevara was also in bolivia at the time hiding out uh but Fel- felchinelli went there to document the debray trial and check in on some friends next thing you know felchinelli gets arrested and interrogated in bolivia allegedly by the cia directly so the cia is allegedly in bolivia mm. interrogating felchinelli maybe about the whereabouts of che guevara uh, during the Debray trial. Um, but, you know, Felchinelli's got some, some high friends, right? The president of Italy and the foreign minister both protest, and Felchinelli gets released and expelled after two days. But the fascist party, the MSE, or the Italian social movement, they raise hell in parliament. Street thugs ransack Felchinelli's bookstores in Milan and Rome. And declaring down with Felchinelli, the agitprop millionaire. So you know. <laughs> yeah. So 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 again, you have this sort of, this sort of world historical conjunction of forces with you know, um, Che attempting guerrilla war in Bolivia and the CIA being involved and so on, and Felchinelli right in the middle of it. You know. Is, <laughs> He's, he's uh, you know, very much the hero of his own story, but he's also kind of, you know, getting in the middle of these really big stories, you know. That's a good point, you know. he, As much as a, sort of a libertarian publisher as he is, he wants to be the story, he wants to be the protagonist in his own adventure novel, mm, you know, mm, in absolutely. a sense. Yeah. I, it's really interesting. Um, so... The question here returns to the beginning of the episode. How did Felchinelli's gun end up in the hands of Monica Ertl, a German-born Bolivian assassin in Hamburg who would go down in history as Che Guevara's Avenger? That's where we're going to leave off for next time in our two-part episode on the life and times of Gian Giacomo Felchinelli. Huge thanks to Phil Edwards, author of More Work, Less Pay, about the Italian workerist and autonomia movements for joining me. And please tune in next time for the concluding episode in which we discuss Felcinelli's efforts to revive the anti-fascist partisan group, The Gap, and his impact on the armed struggle in Italy. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this has been the Years of Lead Pod. Uh-huh.